Heavenly Father, uh, as we come before your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us, speak to our hearts, uh, encourage us, challenge us, we pray. Uh, may your spirit be working powerfully through your word to shape us to be the people you call us to be. Uh, we pray this for our benefit and for your glory. Amen. Well, the question that today's text poses to us is this. What does it look like to truly live for the kingdom, for Jesus' kingdom? And indeed, the section opens uh, with the focus on Jesus and then moves on to those who would follow him. So, verse 51. Uh, As the time approached for him, that is Jesus, to be taken up to heaven Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So Jesus sets out for Jerusalem with determined resolution. And of course, he knows the horrors and the sufferings that await him there. And yet nothing will deter him or distract him. He knows that the cross must precede the crown, and he has counted the cost, and he is resolute in his resolve. And so thus starts the journey to Jerusalem. And indeed, in Luke's gospel, it is a a literary device. It's a literary journey uh, as well as a literal journey because in this uh, section, uh, this starts a new section which runs all the way to chapter 19, verse 44, where Jesus then arrives in Jerusalem. Now, as with any journey, uh, the point is not just getting to the destination in, in spite of what your kids may maintain. It's what you see and learn on the way. And that is the true benefit and blessing of this journey in Luke's gospel. Because on this journey, Jesus will be apprenticing his followers. He'll be teaching and modeling discipleship. And therefore, this is a journey of discovery and learning. And all who would follow Jesus are invited to listen and to learn and to observe Jesus. And it's that all-important question, what does it look like for me to truly live for the kingdom? Now, as Jesus commences his journey, we will see in this passage a variety of reactions to Jesus and his call to live for him and his kingdom. Uh, First, we're going to see there is an outright rejection of following Jesus. But then uh, there is a failure uh, to count the cost of following Jesus, another person where there's a putting off of the decision to follow Jesus until the right time, whenever that is. And there's a fourth person, fourth category, where there's a a desire to hang on to the old life while still following Jesus. So different responses to Jesus. Uh, We're going to spend most of our time in the first two, and then we'll move more quickly over the last two. And of course, the question is this. It is wise to ask ourselves, as we track with Jesus on this journey, What does it look like for me to live for the kingdom? And for each of us, the answer will vary. Uh, Different people are at different stages in their journey. And if we listen well to the text, different challenges and different questions will flow out of it. So, uh, the first category in the first person, we see an outright rejection of following Jesus. Uh, Verse 52. And Jesus sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. 
But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Now, the animosity between Jews and Samaritans is, in the ancient world is well known. Uh, of course, the Samaritans were a mongrel people. Uh, they were originally Jews who had then polluted their ethnic purity through intermarrying with pagan peoples. And they had betrayed, therefore, and debased their ethnic and their religious heritage. So, for Jesus, a Jew, to include Samaritan villages on his preaching itinerary would have raised many eyebrows. You see, he's really breaking all protocols. Uh, Jesus is going the extra mile. He's being incredibly gracious in including Samaritan villages on his discipleship recruitment tour. But a shocking report comes back to him. Uh, those sent ahead to prepare for his arrival have been sent packing. And we're told the reason why he was refused an entry visa. Because he was heading for Jerusalem. You see, it was an ethnic snub motivated by ethnic pride. In their historic split from the Israelite nation, the Samaritans no longer recognized Jerusalem as the capital city and the place of centralized worship. Now then, the sense of bristling indignation amongst the disciples was palpable. How dare they? How outrageous. Why did we even bother? Talk about biting the hand that feeds. You see, the disciples want to use their connections and their power to launch a retributive strike. They want to nuke the whole village, verse 54. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Well, James and John are certainly living up to their nicknames. They, of course, are called the Sons of Thunder. But to their surprise, uh, Jesus is having none of it. Verse 55. But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. Why is Jesus so forbearing? Uh, surely to reject Jesus is to invite God's judgment. Uh, well, yes, uh, ultimately all who reject Jesus will incur God's judgment. Uh, for example, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7, it says this. Uh, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Uh, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Uh, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. However, the point is, that happens on the day when Jesus returns from heaven. Uh, that will be the day of judgment, but until that time, each day is a day of salvation. Each day is an opportunity for people to embrace Christ in faith. You see, the disciples' mistake they wanted to move to immediate judgment. They thought that there was no hope for these hard-hearted Samaritans, and they had no patience with them. And yet, God is patient and does his saving work in his time. 2 Peter 3 verse 9. 
The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, there is a great irony in this, because by the time of Acts chapter 8, which maybe is about a year or two later, many Samaritans are putting their faith in Jesus as their Messiah. This is, of course, after the resurrection of Christ and the ascension. And then it is, ironically, John, the disciple, along with Peter, who are sent to Samaria to pray for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. And after that, uh, John and Peter tour Samaritan villages, telling others about for Jesus. I'm sure John would have been deeply relieved that his original request for fire to fall was refused. How does this apply to us? Well, uh, when somebody treats us badly, uh, it is easy for us to slip into the same disciple's mindset. Uh, It may be somebody with whom we have shared the gospel who has then uh, vigorously rejected it and even thrown it back in our face. Uh, It may not be somebody we've particularly shared the gospel with, but somebody who's just been particularly nasty to us. And we think to ourselves, I really wish they weren't on the planet's surface. In such situations, uh, I've caught my mind starting to wander down uh, similar avenues to those of the disciples. Uh, It wasn't so much savoring the prospect of fire falling from heaven, but given my airline background, uh, the prospect of a stricken airliner crashing onto their house. The modern day equivalent, maybe. At last, I would be rid of them forever. But hang on, that's not a very healthy thought experiment. And I say to myself, let's try something more gospel-shaped. And so I tell my mind to go down a different path, and I envisage a different end scenario. I say to myself, wouldn't it be amazing if these people came to know Christ? How would I feel towards them if they became brothers and sisters in Christ and actually members of our congregation? And so from that, I then challenge myself. It it takes me on a different journey. I'm asking myself, how can I continue to love them and be patient with them? You see, this challenge I'm setting myself is to view them through the eyes of faith. And I found it helpful to envisage their salvation rather than their oblivion. So we shouldn't be too quick to brand anyone a lost cause. Rather, we should long and pray for their salvation. The time of judgment has not yet come. It is still the day of salvation. So that was the first response to Jesus and his call for people to trust and to follow him. Outright rejection. Now in the remaining verses of this chapter... Jesus encounters three people who, each in their own way, have some interest in following Jesus. Uh, You will notice that the word follow is a recurring word and link. Yet, each is in some way deficient in their approach to discipleship. Each of these people has a flawed understanding of what it means to live for the kingdom. And in each case, therefore, we can ask ourselves, are there ways in which this speaks into my life and to my discipleship? Now, the first of these three would-be followers is a person with a poorly thought-through commitment, uh, verse 57. 
As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. I will follow you wherever you go. On the face of it, this guy would seem to be a gift to anyone in ministry. He's got a wholehearted commitment. But it is obvious from the response of Jesus that Jesus discerns a problem. This chap has, it seems, an unrealistic view of the Christian life. He has not really counted the cost of following Jesus. And in effect, Jesus asks him, are you really prepared to bear the cost of following me? Are you really prepared, in his case, to leave the comforts of your home life? At verse 58, Jesus replied, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. When we think about it, uh, the cost of ministry for Jesus is incomprehensible. There could not be a greater contrast or cost. Think about it for a moment. Jesus has left the glory and the comfort of his home in heaven to become a homeless, penniless, itinerant teacher on earth. He has no fixed place of abode. Uh, he was constantly on the move. I assume he had very few possessions. Maybe just what he could carry. A toothbrush and antiperspirant, hopefully. He had given up the comforts of his home life. And for those who would follow the Son of Man, there is also a similar cost. Now, for some who follow Jesus, uh, he calls them to literally give up the comforts of their home life. Uh, examples would be those who would go overseas as missionaries. In 1928, a young 18-year-old girl from northern Macedonia called, and I'm trying to pronounce her Macedonian name, uh, Gognitha Agnes Bogjiju. If you're fluent in Macedonian, you can correct that. Uh, she was called Agnes to her friends. Uh, she boarded a ship for India to serve as a nun in a Catholic mission. Uh, Agnes felt called to serve the poor and the dying in India. Initially, Agnes lived in a convent in India, but soon followed her conviction to actually leave the convent and to live amongst the poor in Calcutta. She later wrote, and I quote, Leaving the convent was my greatest sacrifice, the most difficult thing I have ever done. It was more difficult than leaving my family and my country. Well, Agnes would continue to work tirelessly amongst the poor and the destitute until her death in 1997, at age 87. And her name was Mother Teresa. Now, it's unlikely that the Lord will call many of us to literally leave the comforts of our home for overseas missionary service. But there are other ways in which he may call us to surrender some of the comforts of our home. As I have prayerfully reflected on this, I have been convicted that there is a particular line of application for us as a congregation that some of us need to hear, but that may be hard to hear. As a watchman, it is my responsibility to sound the alarm, to deliver the hard word. 
And it's your responsibility to prayerfully consider if the Lord is speaking to you personally through this word. In 2015, uh, you recall we tasked a consultancy team with helping us deepen the quality of our community life together. Six years later, do you think we've made much progress? Are we a welcoming, inclusive community of people who are constantly deepening our relationships? Are we growing in our ability to live out lives of radical gospel hospitality and inclusivity? Uh, Firstly, let's consider hospitality. Uh, For some of you, I wonder if the challenge to give up some of the comforts of your home comes not from leaving it to go overseas, but from inviting others into it. The prospect of inviting people into the private sanctuary of your homes for hospitality is not something that some of you savor. And we can push the challenge even further. For the goal is not just an exclusive hospitality where we invite around family and close friends. The goal is a radical, inclusive hospitality that embraces those whom we are unfamiliar with or even uncomfortable with. As a congregation, are we engaging in a radical gospel hospitality and inclusivity? Are we outward-looking and inclusive, or are we inward-looking, uninterested in others, and cliquey? Uh, The question can be considered at two levels. Uh, Firstly, in regards to the non-churched, and secondly, in regards to those in our church who who are not in our immediate circle. If you recall, uh, we used to run the Eat With A Neighbor initiative. Now, the idea, of course, was to encourage each of us to be more intentional in taking social initiatives with the unchurched people in our lives, to invite people around for a meal or some other social initiative. Well, the last time we ran Eat With A Neighbor, uh, we were several weeks into the promoting the program from the frontier, And I asked someone in our congregation who they were prayerfully considering reaching out to. He looked at me blankly. It wasn't even on his radar. I was so discouraged by that response that I haven't had the heart to run the Eat With A Neighbor initiative since. As the saying goes, you can take a horse to water but you can't make it drink. Are you prepared to move out of our sleepy, comfortable zones and intentionally reach out to others, particularly the lost? How welcoming and outward-looking are we as a congregation? In 2016, John Irvin had a friend from America visit this church congregation. She came along for one of the services. Afterwards, she shared her sense of shock that not only had no one come to speak to her, but she said it seems that nobody even noticed her. 
her comment at the end of that service was, I'm not actually sure that these people are actually alive. That's not an isolated incident. Uh, during the time that we've been here, Trace and myself, we have uh, had three sets of friends who have visited our church here, and sadly, each has commented afterwards that nobody came to speak to them. Uh, Elizabeth Yeager made the comment the other week that the unexpected blessing of services on Zoom has been the interaction after the services in the chat rooms. Uh, because of the way it randomly allocates people to these chat rooms, we have been talking to others in the congregation whom we wouldn't otherwise talk with. And that has been a healthy experience. But sadly, numbers staying on the line for the discussion rooms after the services in recent weeks and months have been declining very dramatically. People are no longer hanging around and making time and an effort to speak to maybe people whom they're not normally speaking to. Are we outward looking? Are we willing to take an interest in others around us? At one men's, men's social last year, uh, as I do, I was asking lots of questions of others around me and taking an interest in how they're going. However, throughout the whole evening, I was only asked one question of myself. One person asked one question of me for the entire evening. And that's not an isolated instance in my experience. See, for some, there seems to be a very limited and shallow interest in others. And the challenge is not just to the congregation generally, but also to the elders in particular. Are we leading by example? Are we living out a radical gospel inclusivity and hospitality? Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. If we follow the Son of Man... We must be prepared to give up some of our home comforts and to move out of our comfort zones. We must be prepared to pay the cost of discipleship in whatever shape and form it takes. Yet, in all of this, there is a great irony. Here we are, considering radical gospel hospitality and inclusivity as a cost of following Jesus. And yet the point is this. If we all participate in this end goal, the end result is actually a joyous one for all of us. Warm, caring, loving community. Let's keep going. So thirdly, more briefly, uh, the danger of procrastinating commitment. Uh, the next potential follower of Jesus is the opposite to the first. Rather than failing to count the cost, this potential disciple displays a procrastinating hesitance, verse 58, 59. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. At first glance, this does not seem to be an unreasonable request. If his father has just died, why on earth shouldn't he sort out the funeral first? However, uh, some cultural background helps bring some clarity. Uh, 
Now, it's unlikely that his father was dead because in those days, Jewish people buried their dead within 24 hours. And what's more, family members sat with the body of the deceased until it was laid to rest. So you see, if his father had died already, his son would not have been talking with Jesus at all. Rather, he would have been sitting at home with his family in mourning. Now, of course, it is a God-honoring desire to care for our parents. And indeed, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus warns against making service to God, what is called korban, an excuse for not caring for our parents. But in this situation, Jesus discerns a different heart. He sees that this man is using his family situation as an excuse for delaying his commitments to discipleship. Verse 60. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This man is guilty of procrastination. Rather than being too quick to promise to follow like the first guy, this chap is too slow to perform. The time to commit to Christ isn't quite right, he's saying. I'll just wait until... Uh, People can put off a commitment to Christ for a whole host of reasons. And yet Jesus says, don't delay. This is the day of salvation. Don't test God's patience. So finally, let's move to look at the last potential follower. For he suffers from an indecisive commitment. Verse 61. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Again, it would seem like a reasonable request. Who would begrudge the guy saying farewell to his loved ones? But again, Jesus' response indicates there is more going on than meets the eye. Verse 62, Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. From what Jesus is saying, this looking back is not momentary. It's ongoing as he guides the plow in his kingdom service. As this potential follower moves forward, he is continually looking backwards. He doesn't want to make a definite break with his old way of life. He wants to maintain a foot in both camps, that of his old life and his new life. So, uh, Jesus set out resolutely for Jerusalem. Jesus didn't underestimate the cost involved. He didn't procrastinate, and he didn't waver with indecision. And if we shall trust and follow Jesus, he calls us to travel the same journey. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Let me pray for us before we open up to comments and questions. Heavenly Father, uh, Scripture today has been challenging to us. It has been a hard passage for us to sit under as a congregation. Uh, we pray that you would enable us to reflect on it objectively, to look at our own lives and hearts and our own passions and priorities, and to see if and where it speaks to us and challenges us. Please, we pray, help us to embrace that path of change and transformation, uh, repenting and turning afresh to renewed and deeper commitment to you, and help us do that individually as a congregation so that we live lives out together as your people, more joyfully and more deeply enjoying your presence with us and our presence with each other. Amen.